Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm all right. Thanks, Alex. How are you? Well, I'm feeling the autumn rolling in. And by that, I don't mean, you know, season of mists and mellow fruitfulness. I mean that I've got a gigantic wall chart in which I'm plotting the book tornado that is coming our way. <laughs> yes. I'm very impressed you've got a wall chart. I just kind of panically read the next one that I have to read. I was thinking about that, you know, because we've been, well, you've been doing more than me, but I've been reading quite a lot of the books coming up in this autumn. And there's some really wonderful stuff, actually, some really brilliant stuff. But there's also a great pleasure in reading what you're not supposed to be reading. Oh, playing hooky when you're reading yeah. is the best thing ever. I do it with a thriller in bed every right. single night. Yes, I do do Even that. Even if I've been sitting there with something, you know, that I must read. I do have you? to have 10 minutes of a hokey thriller. Oh, there you go. So I, I do do that with a certain author who you and other listeners who've listened before will probably be able to guess who it is, but I won't go over it again. I do do oh, that no, with him. Oh, no, no, listeners, write in <laughs> if you don't know by now. Dear listener, dear one listener who hasn't heard it. So I do do that with, let's just say, Discworld. But this time I was also reading, because I had a, a couple of days off, reading things... You know, the kind of joy of serendipity when you just think, oh, I haven't read anything by them. And I tend to read books that are about two, one or two years out of date. So I read Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin, which was the big smash last year, wasn't it? Well, it would have been unfashionable to read it last year. You'd, it would have been bandwagon <laughs> oh jumping. Oh, yes, darling. Yeah, absolutely. I've only just watched The Wire. What can I say? <laughs> and it's about video games, but you don't have to like video games, I don't think to like it I thought was really really good and if you do like video games you can actually play one of the games in it if you do a bit of research online you can find one of the games they talk about because after the book someone's gone and created one of the games someone described so that was very pleasing I did play it I wasn't very good you do like video games though don't you I do I don't play them but I have read that book and enormously enjoyed it so you really don't have to know anything about them yes good that was my instinct yeah yeah but you do like them and you play them. Not very well, not very well, but I do enjoy some of them. And this one, not to be too much of a spoiler, but this one is a very simple video game based on Emily Dickinson's poems. You'd like it. Everyone would like it. It's a really good game. And the other thing I read was Anne Patchett because I've never read any. Did you read Tom Lake or did you read something a little bit further back? I read something further back because I just kind of looked through and thought, which is the one that it sounds like I should read. So I read The Dutch House. It's tremendous, isn't it? It's terrific. It's really terrific. And that's such a good idea, that idea of sometimes that a house has, it feels as though the house has sort of got the character of the family and even if you're not in the house anymore, it's still the idea of the house and the people in it still holds sway, even if they're not there. So many novels are good like that, aren't they? I mean, Sarah Waters springs to mind in more than, well, several of her novels, perhaps all of them, the architecture of, of where the domestic settings is really important. And of course, we've mm. often talked about I Capture the Castle. Yes, that's true. You know, you've got to that's have a castle, true. really. You do, but I didn't, I I never imagined that castle as clearly as I imagined the Dutch mm, house mm. because she's so specific and it's so almost overbearing. I mean, it's a bit much, isn't it, really? I am going to say to you, if Anne Patchett is not somebody that you've read, my very favourite of hers is Commonwealth. Okay. And I would send you back to Commonwealth, which I think is the novel before the Dutch house, but also Tom Lake, which has just come out, I thought was marvellous. Mm. So there we are. There's some tips for you from quite a long time ago that I should have read before. We're also going to talk about lots and lots of books that are coming up. And indeed architecture. No spoilers, but we're going to well, we're going to talk about not a grand house, but a freezing cold garden shed. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. yes that's that's coming good. up. Yes. Yes, we are. And also, if you want to read about all of these wonderful pieces that we're about to discuss, remember to subscribe to the TLS because that's how you do it. Right, to the sheds on this week's show. Nicola Shulman on the immense volunteer army behind the Oxford English Dictionary. And novelist John Niven joins us to talk about his new memoir, Oh Brother, which includes discussion of mental illness and suicide. But first, in this week's TLS, Nicola Shulman asks a question. 
how do you make a popular book about the complete OED? And her answer, which is a review of a popular book about the complete OED, and it's called The Dictionary People by Sarah Ogilvie, is a fascinating and delightful exploration of the Victorian world, complete as the Victorian world so often is, with surprising amounts of sex and violence. Nicola is here now to talk us through this extraordinary history. Nicola, many thanks for joining us. Hi, hi. Thank you for asking me on the podcast. It's really exciting. So, yeah, this wonderful book, The Dictionary People, Sarah Ogilvie is an interesting person. And I think that she's an academic, but she is also a journalist. And I always think journalists make the best company. Got you would in... say that though, wouldn't you, Nicola? I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> what an excellent start to this interview, Nicola. You're, it's you're a very so right. Uh, I thought we'd all agree with that one. Um, <laughs> because they were, their interests are wide-ranging. They're not really totally up themselves. And you know, they're quite humble. And also, they're always trying to make it interesting for the reader. And that's what Sarah Ogilvie does in this book. She is an academic. She teaches at Oxford, Cambridge, all kinds of places. Uh, she was working as a, a lexicographer at the OED, and one day she went down and she was leaving her post, and she went down into the into the archive to sort of have a sniff around delicious smells of beeswax and so on. And while she was sniffing around down there, she came across these boxes, and one which turned out to contain the address book of James Murray, who was the second editor of the OED. And it was the addresses and names of all the contributors, the volunteers. And it turned, what she discovered, I don't know whether she already knew this, but I certainly didn't, was that more than 3,000 people had contributed to the OED in the sort of between 1875 and 1928, which is when it was published. And this had all of their names, it had their addresses, it had the words they'd sent in, it had the books that they'd taken their words out of, and they were answering an appeal sent out by Murray and by Furnival before him, his predecessor. But Murray kind of really stepped it up, which was saying, you know, went out to all the schools, clubs, universities, you know, all the millions of associations and societies that proliferated all over the 19th century, all over the empire and all over the world asking people to use the books that they had to hand and send in words, words with, with their context. And so lots and lots of people answered the call and it wasn't the people he thought was gonna do it. He thought it would be the professional philologists and lexicographers, but it wasn't them. It was lots of weird and wonderful people from all over the world who answered this. And, um, when I read this book and I thought, you know, I've been using the Oxford Dictionary all my life. I'm looking now at the shorter Oxford, which I was given for my 18th birthday, two volumes by my dad. And it's been by my side all this time. And it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful resource, but it never, I'd never given a second thought about, you know, to how it was made. It's such a fascinating story. I was going to say because, as you say, because it began in a basement archive, which seems that seems kind of apt, doesn't it? And it's the start of an A.S. Byatt novel right there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it really is. And as you said, there's this kind of wonderful work that we sort of take for granted. But I had no idea that it was done by amateurs, essentially. I mean, as, no. as you're saying, I would have thought it would be, you know, if you asked me, I'd say, oh, it's a team of, like you say, philologists or professors, or I don't know what. Can you give us a bit more about the, so Murray put out this call to basically almost everyone in Britain. And then all these people started sending in what they called slips, which are six by four inch pieces of paper with these words and their context, their quotations, supporting quotations on them. And they were the whole kind of gamut of Victorian society, Victorian intellectual society, I would say, you know, and all kinds of strange and wonderful people turned out to be doing it for all kinds of strange reasons. There were quite a lot of lunatics. In fact, they're three of the four most prolific contributors. Three of them were inmates of lunatic asylums, who obviously had a lot of time and also were very obsessive. There was one who used to go through obsessions we all know somebody like this, but I mean, they would suddenly get involved with medical books and so send in a huge number of uh, words for symptoms. Then he would go on to novels and then there would be a whole different kind of vocabulary that he would send in. And there would be people like, I mean, really extraordinary people. So John Richardson, for example, he was, um, 
He'd been surgeon on the Franklin expedition and he had been a cannibal because they were so starving to death. And then an Inuit guy turned up and started bringing them food. He said he was hunting in the woods. And then it turned out that actually what this Inuit guy had done, well, according to Sir John Richardson, had actually killed some other people who had gone off looking for food from the expedition and was bringing them bits of his leg to eat. And then he went out to look for Franklin after Franklin vanished. Uh, didn't find him, came back, and then he sort of settled in Scotland where he sort of, where he kind of buried himself in Scottish ballads and kind of cosy things like that, sending in words from the sort of songs of his childhood. It was sort of very, very different from that life. Yes, yeah, yeah. How did it work day to day? I love this idea. Was it that he sent out the appeal for slips or something and on the first day he got two tonnes of them? First day at work, officially, as yeah. it were. Well, they would be, they would have been the ones that would come from Furnival. So right. when Furnival retired, it was what was left over. So then that was his first day at work. And what he did was he then he gave these to three or four professional people working in what he rather grandly called the scriptorium, which was a freezing cold metal shed in his I love that. garden in Banbury Road, 78 Banbury Road, if anybody listening is living there. And... Those people there who were salaried, the only salaried people, would then try and sort these out into words, into chronologies, and into senses. Right. You know, so when you're thinking of this, you're not just thinking of the words, and this is a time when huge numbers of words were coming into the language because huge numbers of things were coming into the language. There were vast discoveries in science and in every kind of field. So it was accompanied by their own lexicon plus there were all the ordinary words but there were also senses the word with the most senses do you think you can guess what it is oh never okay i'm gonna put you out of your misery absolutely no i'm really stuck sorry go on it's run with 654 senses good lord yeah (laughs) so they had to kind of minutely kind of pull apart you know, whether something was a separate sense or the same sense. It's incredible to think of the labour involved. The illustrations, I mean, as in the contextualizations, are another fascinating aspect of this book and the way that you write about this book. And the idea that these volunteers, this volunteer army, really, were using their own libraries so you have some extraordinary things where people just you know rely heavily on a favorite author for example or one marvelous story of somebody using their own books just offering yes. examples <laughs> from their own books which That's is narcissism <laughs> beyond narcissism isn't it? John Richardson did that as well but that was partly because his books sort of had words from the arctic circle that hadn't mm. kind of come mm. into the language before but I think that the guy you're thinking of is somebody in Philadelphia who just decided yes. to he wanted to get sort of you know literary fame of the second order so he just got a, he, he has a lot of mentions there's also a Mr Collier this isn't in the piece of the Brisbane Courier. If you look at the OED, apparently you'll notice that they're really strangely slanted towards the Bris- towards the Brisbane Courier Mail, and this is because of a Mr. Collier who sent in for about fifty years quotations from the Brisbane Courier Mail because that's what he read. Because that's what he read. And then there's also, which I particularly like, and I think I did write about Henry. Was he called Henry Spencer Ashby? who was a famous, well, famous now, a Victorian pornographer. Um, Well, he wasn't a pornographer. He was a collector of pornography, the biggest collection of pornography in the world, sort of behind his sort of extremely respectable sort of veneer of kind of, you know, sort of doting husband and father and so on. He had this vast collection of pornography. Can we guess where his examples were taken from? Yes. (laughs) He liked to kind of tease the dictionary by using ordinary words, but giving them an inner kind of sadomasochistic, erotic context. So he would use examples from his own library of porn as obviously kind of gave him a bit of a thrill. Now we're moving from an A.S. Byatt novel to a Sarah Waters novel now, aren't we? <laughs> I mean, it's so fascinating because, of course, one of the things that we know isn't true, but somehow it's very difficult not to feel it, is that there is, to a great work of reference like this, a certain objectivity or neutrality. And of course, mm, it's mm. enormously inflected by the people who made it. 
As it turns out, absolutely. And Mr. Collier has more quotations than Virginia Woolf or T.S. Eliot, for example, just from, you know, just from sheer persistence <laughs> with the <laughs> Brisbane Courier Mail and that guy Peacock who sent it, who the brother and sister team, who for some reason absolutely loved Mr. Peacock's novels, not the Peacock and totally different Peacock and sent in hundreds of quotations from his novels, which would otherwise, you know, not troubled really the kind of, you know, the surfaces of the literary world. It feels to me like a proto version of getting into Wikipedia and it's, sticking in references yes, to your crowd, own work. Yes, a crowdsourcing which betrays the crowd. I mean, one person who didn't get into it quite so much was Robert Browning, because as we discovered, mm. John Murray had no time for Browning and Browning's use of vocabulary, did he? He particularly hated poets. He felt that they just, you know, <laughs> that they were very cavalier with language. And if you wrote to them saying, you know, what is it? So what exactly do you mean by this word? They would, I can't remember the book. They were sort of right back, sort of saying, it means what I wanted it to mean or something like that. <laughs> and he particularly disliked Browning. He said, Mr. Browning uses words without any regard to their meaning. <laughs> and I was also thinking of, you know, like all that historical poetry that Browning writes, so sort of set in, you know, set in the renaissance or whatever you know where you've got all these words that you know and you have to if you're poor old murray you'll have to think well is that a 19th century usage or is that a is that a 16th century usage and then he had to divide all these things arc exactly obs which one comes across obsolete slang there was a whole thing actually about slang words and obscenities which is that Murray wanted it to be complete, but also that the Obscene Publications Act had just been published in 1857, I think. And so he had to do it without, you know, without falling foul of that. Mm. The word that was so shocking, it had to be put inside an envelope, inside another envelope and revealed. Secretly. Which was condom. I must say, when I read your piece, I was thinking, what? What is the word? It must what be is, awful. I know. <laughs> it was James Dixon, who was his advisor on medical terms, who wrote to him in the strongest possible language, saying the word was too <laughs> to be contemplated in the dictionary. But I love the fact that he put it in two envelopes rather than like a condom. <laughs> and that he also said that he shouldn't have included the word appendicitis, because if he was going to use all the itises, then there would be no end to it. You can't have every itis in the dictionary. So anyway, poor old Murray, slightly browbeaten, left it out. And then Edward VII's coronation was delayed because he got appendicitis. So everybody was appendicitis, 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 <laughs> and nobody knew what it meant. So when they looked it up in the dictionary, it wasn't there. It doesn't exist. It's not real. <laughs> which brings us to the key point in a way, which is that ultimately they are trying to make a book that is useful that people are able to use that will give them answers to navigate the language that they're living with and using every day of their lives. So there's this overwhelming kind of sense of sort of mission, isn't there? And then if there's a great lapse like that is immediately sort of shown up in a very obvious way to have a direct consequence. People don't know what's the matter with, with the king. Exactly. They don't know what's the matter with the king, um, which I think is a sort of a brilliant kind of piece of, sort of anti-serendipity, whatever the word for that is. I was going to ask you, if I may, just slightly rowing back to the people who were the, the contributors, because it was this extraordinary cast of people, as you say, and also the place of women in it was quite interesting, wasn't it? There's, he's, she's very interesting about women. She said there were lots of women who did it. And she asked this interesting question of whether they did it partly so that they could read in peace without being, without being made to do jobs. Exactly, without being made to do domestic jobs. But also it was the beginning of the very first women had just been accepted at universities and were now coming out. There's some of these unbelievably learned and knowledgeable women. Some of them were the daughters of vicars who had learned you know, from their father's libraries. I mean, they'd done extraordinary things. Some of them had already produced their own lexicons of dialect words. Uh, some of them had already, you know, edited Shakespeare. Lots of them knew kind of things like old French. I mean, there were some of these women were phenomenally learned and were very, very useful to Murray because in some cases they didn't have jobs. And so he could send them things for sub-editing as well as, so there were various different jobs. There were writing senses, there was sub-editing, they were sending in words. And if you were really good at one thing, then you get kind of asked to, for example, fill in gaps. Like it had a word, but the chronologies were missing. So they would be asked to do that. 
It sort of puts you in mind a little bit, many years later, of Bletchley Park, doesn't it? And of this mm. sort of, you know, the fact that these talents of women came particularly to the fore when, in a sense, they were most needed, but found expression elsewhere in that society really quite difficult. That idea of hierarchies, you know, and Murray himself is a fascinating character and on that score, isn't he? I mean, class comes into it. Very much so, but actually just, I should say that when they had the dinner for the publication of the OED, no woman was allowed to attend. Some of, in fact, very few of the volunteers were asked because whoever was doing it, Murray was dead by then, decided it would be, it was more important to get kind of people like the editor of the Times and sort of Archbishop and things to attend. So there were very few of these people who were actually in attendance. The women were allowed to come as long as they stood at a balcony overlooking proceedings, all these merry people having dinner, like some sort of kind of elaboration of Virginia Woolf's opening chapter of a room of one's own. They're sort of looking at all these people having a lovely dinner, standing in a balcony. Standing yes. on the balcony without... <laughs> With the smells wafting up. Without a glass of wine. Without even a glass of wine or a sausage. Sandwich. Exactly. Of course. <laughs> I know. No wonder awful. we rebelled. I know, Lord. but Murray himself was an outsider, and in fact, you know, she's got this book is very cleverly arranged as an alphabet itself. So we get F for families, E for Europeans, C for cannibal, L for lunatic, Q for queers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And what's so great about the way that that's organised is that it enables her to bring in kind of different characters, but also to discuss different aspects of how the book was in fact made. So by the end of this book, you really understand how the OED was made, but you've never been bored for an instant. And you found out a lot about all these extraordinary people, a lot about Murray. Murray was a self-taught schoolmaster from Mill Hill. He had friends in the academic world, but he failed to kind of garner the sort of, I don't know, he, he didn't get the support of the sort of, you know, the high ups in Oxford, which he hoped that he would get. So, um, yeah, he left school at 14. He managed to teach himself 25 languages. I mean, one boggles at these people. And then he had a lot of children. And they had 11 children. children. Partly because, as you point out, <laughs> nobody had sent him the thing which must not be mentioned exactly. in the yes. <laughs> right. sent him an actual condom it would have been more use to him and sadly you mentioned no. he didn't make it to the dinner he didn't see the end he of didn't it, did see he? the dinner he said well will i or my grandchildren live to see zed and you can see this kind of this agonizingly slow things he says you know the mighty take has now been finished that's just the word take oh the word take oh, yeah I see. it's the word take it's not taking money it's the word take you know, because the other thing is that what he at one point thought would it be better, he rather wished that he hadn't asked people for words of, of for novel words and obscure senses, because actually there were so many words of ordinary words that he needed people to send in as well. And, mm. you know, those were all ones which were very tricky, you know, perfectly ordinary words, because, of course, a dictionary has to have ordinary words. Mm. Because this was a, not a prescriptive dictionary. It wasn't like Dr. Johnson's dictionary, which told you what he thought it meant. It was language as it is used, and so far as it was possible to garner all the examples. Yeah. And so when you get a word like take, as you say, and run, it's actually got so many variants and it yes. means so many things, which we don't realise until you try and explain it to someone who's not an English speaker. Exactly. You, say, you know, take on, take up, take to, yeah, any of that. So, yeah, sadly, he didn't get to see Zed. No, his last word was twilight that he wrote. That's such a beautiful detail. He knew he was dying. It's a very beautiful detail. It's very typical of the kind of detail that Sarah Ogilvy has, you know, has found in this book. She really, it really is a kind of a great work of sympathy with everybody. She's very sympathetic to everybody. A person I rather like is Furnival, who was his predecessor, who was much more chaotic than Murray. He was the one who lost all of the ends that had been sent in by Charlotte Young, which I feel very sympathetic with. Well, so do I. You say that would send a <laughs> shiver because I just worried that that's what I would do. I'd be like, I've got them somewhere. I've got them somewhere. Exactly. They're in the scriptorium. Yeah, in the scriptorium, no, they're not. Oh, maybe they're still with Miss Young. I don't know. He also moved in his incredibly beautiful, 37 years younger, mistress called Tina, 
who had a wonderful singing voice and was a sort of young genius who'd edited Hamlet and there was no end to what she could do. And she was fantastically useful. And she was the one poor thing just after he separated from his wife, causing a scandal. And he moved her in with him and she went home to stay with her parents and she lit a match head from, you know, an early match, flew off, set fire to the curtains, then set fire to the bustle of her skirt and then set fire to her corset, which she couldn't undo because the lacing was at the back. And she died horribly of terrible burns because of this. Gosh. Oh, yeah, horrible. it's a terrible, terrible story. Yeah. 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 Well, I was going to say we were going to end on Twilight, but instead we're going to end on the danger of corsets. The danger of corsets and early match experiments. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But your piece and no doubt the book is absolutely full of amazing details like that. Nicola, thank you so much for talking to us about oh, it today. Thank you for asking me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Take care. Still to come on the show, John Niven on the turbulent life and the untimely death of his much-loved brother. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts, and you'll never miss an episode. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. In 2010, the novelist and screenwriter John Niven's younger brother Gary, known affectionately as Shades, took his own life. He had struggled with severe mental and physical health difficulties for many years, and his death left Niven, his mother and his sister, with an overwhelming sense of loss and many unanswered questions. Now, Niven has written about Gary, their young lives and his own career in the music industry and beyond in an extraordinarily candid and affecting memoir, Oh Brother. We're delighted that he could join us to talk about the project. So a huge welcome to John Niven. John, we're so delighted you've come to talk to us about this memoir. I mean, this is some very difficult material to talk about and obviously to write about you know the mm. book is about the death by suicide in 2010 of your brother Gary or as he is called for most of the book Shades and mm. his death is the end point of many years of mental health issues physical issues and very disrupted and disruptive behavior I wonder what made you want to write about it now and how it began to take shape for you well, I wrote quite a long piece for The Observer exactly 10 years ago this week about the experience of my brother's death because it sort of informed a subplot in my novel, Straight White Male, which came out in 2013. And I kind of had the the kernel, the germ of it back then, the thought that I might one day write about this at, at more length. And there are a few reasons why it took so long, 10 years to get to it. I find with it, as a novelist, I find that any life experience takes three or four years to sort of distill through you properly before you can write about it with the, the right level of detachment and your fiction. But I think with these big seismic life events, like the premature death of an immediate family member and violent circumstances, that takes even longer to process. And there was also not to borrow on about technical stuff, but there was just structure. I, I couldn't quite see the shape of the book for a long time. And it was 
when I finally landed on the idea of the structure of the book to be the week that Gary spent in the coma before he, he died, and then to use that as a springboard to jump back into the past and then return to that timeline of the present. The present in the book being 2010. Once I sort of unlocked that, it started to work. Because I, with memoir, I kind of think, yeah, if you're Mick Jagger, I'll kind of happily read about your school days. But otherwise, forget it, mate. I get sent a lot of books by, shall we say, um, not well-known musicians, memoirs. And sometimes you pick them up and I think, this book is just a list of everything that happened to you from birth until typing the final sentence. There's just no attempt at any kind of narrative structure. And until I had that in place, I just wasn't confident in proceeding, and that took a while to come to. It's true that sometimes, and big apologies to people who've written brilliant biographies and autobiographies of this nature, but sometimes when you pick something up and it says X's grandfather, great-grandfather mm. sometimes, was born in 1821, and you think, oh, my God, it's going to be years. It's going yeah. to be hundreds of pages before we <laughs> yeah. get to the good stuff. But, I mean, I mean, what was sort of mad in my original question to you was the idea that I mean 10 years really or 10 years plus is actually no time in life terms to process that kind of traumatic event and that grief and that loss is it I mean it's really yeah, certainly and I think even yeah. say process it implies yeah. you've got yeah. to the end of something and that that's all good now that's not quite what I mean I just yes. meant I could um see the story whole as a writer Yes, exactly. Again, process is such a, in a way, such a sort of industrial or chemical kind of word that we use to describe the business of grief, the work of grief. All these words seem inappropriate, actually, don't they? It's like this max of therapy to me in a way that things like culture and catharsis do. I think I get asked that a lot, was it cathartic and did you get a sense of closure writing the book? And I kind of shy away from that. I don't think that's quite what happens at the desk. I think what happens at the desk and one of the great privileges of being a writer is that you get to commune quite fiercely with the spirits that you're writing about, if that's not too pretentious. Yeah, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in my brother's mental company when I was writing the book, and I found that quite therapeutic. Mm. In the same way, a novel I wrote God, nearly 15 years ago called The Amateurs, my father was a kind of character in that, and Again, when I was writing that, you spend a lot of time in the mental company. And I quite enjoy that part of the process. Just wondering when you're saying you spent time in this mental process and sort of almost because there's an extraordinary section at the end where you kind of address him directly, which was incredibly difficult to read just because it's so moving. It must have been very difficult to write. Was that part of the structure that came to you? Did you know you were going to do that? I knew from early on that the book was going to end there, and there were a couple of reasons for that. Um, one was, I think of myself primarily as a novelist, and I felt I had a gear available to me that maybe some non-fiction writers don't have, and I wanted to use that, that gear being the ability, hopefully, to sort of inhabit someone else's skin and to make them come alive as a character. And I was, I was nervous about this. I was nervous writing it, and I, I was nervous about the reception of that chapter, and I still am to a degree, because I know that there are questions of probity and can you assume to know what somebody was thinking in the final moments of their life? The other reason I wanted to do it is, I think for survivors of suicide, those left behind, the thing that haunts you constantly is what happened that last night? What exactly went on? You know, and... Running analogous with that is the, the notion that if you could have been there and you could have stopped them, you know, would it all have ended differently? And so I wanted to give the reader who's maybe been through a similar experience the idea of being with that person on the last night, you know? Well, one of the things, obviously, your brother is the most significant character, as it were, in this book. But your father who died many years ago and that also informs a great part of your brother's life and all of your lives of course but your mother and your sister are very much characters in this book mm. and the sense of you writing to us yes but also writing to them about how your family can in some way accommodate what has happened was very powerful to me I wonder if that is how it felt to you because they're very very vivid characters in the book. Yeah, it was 
very much the case, you know, you're, you've often got your, your ideal reader in mind. And my, my certainly my sister, I think, was at the forefront of my mind. When writing this, I kind of knew that my mum hasn't read and I don't think will read the book. I kind of told her not to because the subject of Gary is just still incredibly difficult for her to go close to. And while there's things in the book I think she would find touching and affecting and tender and beautiful, there's a lot in it she would struggle with to read. It's kind of ironic because my mum's my, my biggest fan. She's read every one of my novels, so it's kind of weird that a woman who sailed through Kill Your Friends can't quite bring herself to read my tender family memoir. We should say they're not for the faint-hearted, your novels, entirely, are they? No, no, no. Barbara Pym, it is not. <laughs> <laughs> I think the Irish Times described me as the anti hillary Mantle once. But with my sister, Linda read the book in a very early draft when it was much longer, when it was over 150,000 words, maybe. And uh, she had great notes. She had been very perceptive reading it. And she really didn't ask for anything to be taken out. No, the only thing she said, there was a scene where I had a smoking. And she went, oh, God, the kids don't know a smoke. Can you take that out? <laughs> and I said, yeah. But don't tell us that now. Everyone will know. Oh, God. Exactly. We'll cut that bit out or perhaps just tell her not to listen to the podcast. You you create such a detailed portrait of growing up in a small town in the west of Scotland in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And there is this immense sense of optimism about your family. Your father lands a really good job, better than he might have expected mm -hmm. to. The council house that your parents renovate and they eventually buy. Mm. But at the heart of it, there is this picture of things starting to go wrong for your brother at a pretty early mm. age, isn't there? There's this this sort of these twin pulls in the book. Mm. Mm. Gary, yeah, he was always he wasn't an instinctive hard kid. He wasn't a tough nut. He wasn't very big, but he was the kind of kid who would do the craziest dare that the other kids wouldn't do, you know, to get attention. So that kind of kid sort of becomes the mascot figure in the gang, you know, the one who marches ahead of the troop. And that can lead you into some silly stuff when you're a teenager. But if you're still in that dynamic when you're in your 20s and 30s and with the wrong crowd, it can get very scary, as did eventually happen to my brother. And I think the reason that it went... My dad was an old father. He was born in 1924 and he was 42 when I arrived, which seemed very old father back then. It's pretty normal now. So he, you know, he grew up in the Depression and he fought in the Second World War. And by the time rave culture sort of hits at the end of the 80s and Gary's living this lifestyle where he's going out on a Thursday and not going back to him, you know, stumbling back to his bed on a Monday lunchtime. My dad was just like, what the hell is this? What are you doing? Why don't you have a job? Why aren't you up and off to your work? First thing in the Monday morning, you know, he couldn't comprehend it. And of course, Gary was doing that other thing that's endemic in that part of the world. He stayed with his parents way beyond what he should have. He was still living with mum and dad in his mid to late 20s, you know. It's almost like a lair, this extra yeah, he, yeah, yeah. that's built in the house. My dad had kind of turned a sort of spacious, original two-bed council house into a four-bed with sort of partitioning and uh, loft conversion and whatnot. And so he's living in the attic and it's just a strange... You know, I left to go to university when I was 18 and then I went to London and that was that. I never went back. Whereas he stayed too long and they were driving each other mad. And then the ground zero, the nuclear event of my brother's life was my father dying fairly unexpectedly. Um, I mean, he had cancer, but I don't think my parents had leveled with us about how bad it was. And there was the belief that chemo was working and it really wasn't. And he died quite suddenly. And this is all in the book. And I think for my, with me, he'd seen me graduate from university and he'd seen me get married. And, you know, there was nothing left unsaid between my dad and I. You know, I think we both knew we loved each other. And then I became a parent shortly after that. And you get a whole other insight into how parental love works when that happens. But with Gary, when my dad died, Gary was convinced that he didn't, he, he hated him even. And the kind of, the unspoken apology and love between them that never happened, that really drove the second act of my brother's life with this sort of darkness and rage and pain, you know? Well, I mean, you write so much about the roles that people occupy in families and it's almost at the point it's, it's as if you feel that because you were the studious good brother 
and your younger sister was this wee angel, as she's called. He kind of had, Gary had nowhere to go, but also in a way I felt that because you make your fair share of mistakes that you write about yourself, he's almost like a shield for your own behaviour when you're messing about and when you're not getting things right. There's definitely something to that. That's definitely a fairly acute insight. I mean, only sometimes you only realise things when you step back and look at the the book you've written. And one of the things that I realised was by the mid-90s, certainly, my behaviour was every bit as, you know, crazy and out there and reprehensible as Gary's, you know? It's just that I was doing a sort of respectable middle-class version of it and that I was, you know, I was getting well paid to do it. And it was, on the surface, a sort of cool, happening, respectable job I was doing in the music business as an A&R. But in reality, my behaviour was equally as out there as Gary's ever got for a good few years. And I was looking back at that and I realised, God, you know, at the time I thought, I held the family together and I was the eldest son. And of course, I was absolutely broken with grief too. And the mid, but you know, my dad died in 93. And for the next few years, I was just sort of running away from that and not dealing with it, you know. And I was also the other thing, and I go through this in the book that I'm not dealing with is I really wanted to be a writer. But it seemed to me I was I was so doomed to fail that there was no way that that would ever work. That I was. I was sort of doing the music industry stuff, but it really wasn't what I wanted to be. And that was leading to some pretty self-destructive behaviour. Picking up on what you said, Alex, as well, that it is a bit like a seesaw because there are points when Gary's kind of doing pretty well and he's got himself sorted out and you mm. feel that you're you're not doing very well. And, you know, you're sort of struggling with all sorts of things, but it's you still get the impression that because of the roles in a way, because you're the good older brother, you know, and he's the troublesome middle brother. It's not perceived like that. Yeah, but but possibly wasn't. I mean, again, that was something I didn't realise till I looked back at the book I'd written, but the dramatic arcs of our stories almost intersect perfectly at that point in the early noughties. When, when Gary came out of prison, I remember thinking this could go one of two ways because prison can often be crime university for some people. And... Yeah, he didn't do that. He went the other way. He actually met a nice girl and they bought a house together and he was getting steady work. And for a few years in the you know, 2001-2 through to about five or six, it was probably the happiest, most settled time of his life. And that coincided exactly with me finally leaving the music business to try and write the book that eventually became Kill Your Friends. And of course, in my colossal hubris and arrogance, I thought that would take a year. And it winds up taking like four years and I was, you know, by the end of which I was completely broke and didn't really have any other, if I hadn't worked out, you know, it was quite scary to contemplate at that point. There's this idea of these, you know, that class, as you've mentioned, is so written into this story that, you know, when you're drinking in the Groucho Club, it's not seen as much of a problem as when you're, you know, smashed out of your head on fast and making small time little drug scores here and there but there's the idea of there are these darker edges to Gary's life that are kind of waiting for him when he begins to look for trouble it is there for him to find in the shape of these drug dealers mm. these you know some of whom are small time some of whom are less small time there are fights waiting there are fights to get into and of course that does lead to prison but the environment is not going to help him eventually no 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 and I have friends you know who who now have sons getting into their 20s who, who live in that town and in that part of the world and there's a couple of them who are quite worried about the environment their sons are getting into because yeah it's that kind of that kind of small town gangsterdom its own culture um and kind of I mean there was one particular figure in my brother's life who he had a pseudonym in the book but um I met a policeman, actually, um, when I was researching the book, who knew the guy who was, if you will, my brother's boss. And he said he was a very devious man who they sort of basically recruit kids that, you know, maybe don't get enough respect at home and who are a bit directionless and who aren't maybe necessarily bad kids, but they want to belong somewhere. And then they see these guys having quite nice lifestyles and cars and not really working, and they want to do that too. And before you know it, they're getting deeper and deeper in. So, yeah, it's, um, I think it can be a dangerous environment for a certain kind of person to remain in. 
There is this huge sense of departure, your departure for a different kind of life. And I actually think this was almost the most moving, and everyone will find their most moving bit of the book, but the bit that I found the most moving was when you have what is almost like a revelation when your brother is close to the end of his life of the way that your mother and he lived their lives in Irvine, where they're, they're almost friends, they're sort of colleagues in a way, sharing, they share the same kind of life. You and your sister have gone and you're living completely different lives, but they are sort of going on day by day with whatever difficulties they have, that that is also what your mother is, is losing as well as losing her son. She's losing that kind of friend in her life. It's very true. I'm with my father before he died. There was a sense that even crazy and badly behaved my brother was, he was kind of more like them in a sense. He was a sort of Irving person, an Ayrshire person. He would never have wanted to to live any, anywhere else, as wouldn't they. You know, he he liked the town and that he felt that was his home, as did they. And they read the same newspapers and watched the TV, same TV shows, and they had a lot of culture. Whereas me and my sister are very much the, if you will, the Met Lib elite before it was called such a thing. You know, we both moved to Glasgow and we both, you know, read the broadsheets and, you know, we talked about something we'd heard on Radio 4, just all these things that were not of their world. And yeah, there's a sense that in the, if there were factions in the family, it, certainly after my father died, it was my mum and Gary and me and Linda. So she was kind of losing her ally, you know, for all the pain he caused her with going to prison and with his, you know, father and always had to make kids and all his sort of craziness. He was still recognisable to her in a way that sometimes Linda and I weren't, you know. It has to be said, though, that you are pretty hard on yourself in the book though you know you moving away and all of that but you're in terms of the autobiographical bits you're not concerned with making yourself come out looking good as it were you're detailing what you consider to be your failures and your bad behavior and, and all the stuff that doesn't work yeah well I yeah I like to think it all kind of came good for me finally in my sort of mid-30s when I I started to write the books that I had in me and to have some success with it and I just almost overnight was a much happier, more centered, grounded person, you know. But up until that age, yeah, you know, I, you know, I think I say in the book that when you, you begin writing something like this, you're looking at an identity parade of former selves, and some of them are more recognizable to you than others. And some of them, yeah, just deserve a cuddle and a, you know, don't be too hard on yourself, you were young, you know. Uh, but some of them, you know, you're like, Jesus Christ, what were you thinking? It's kind of telling that you use that image of the identity parade because sometimes it's almost as though you're saying, well, that one over there, lock him up and throw away the key. You're not easy on yourself. There is, in amongst all that, there is some comedy in the book and quite often when you're talking about your adventures in the music business and your attempts to, I mean, your lifelong obsession with Joe Strummer, for example... <laughs> And your inability really to make much headway with being his sort of new best friend <laughs> is is actually very, is very funny. And it also put me in mind, I mean, maybe the hot, something to do with the feeling of the book in a way too. And he's, he's mentioned in the book, Andrew O'Hagan, and thinking about his book, Mayflies, which tells the story of, of, you know, a teenager. And it is a very, very, it's a novel, but it's hugely autobiographical. It tells that moment when music transforms uh, like, yeah. your life, you know, both the listening to it and the kind of social context it gives you. And that happened to you, didn't mm. it? Yeah, I mean, Andy and I knew each other from when we were 15, 16 years old. And we, you know, we rang in the same sort of crowd back then. And looking back, we were very fortunate. We had a really sort of creative little gang you know apart from myself and Andy there's Graham Fagan who's now a very well-known visual artist you know who's been in the Venice Biennale and there's the guys who formed the Trash Can Sinatras who are a very successful Scottish band there was you know a lot of sort of talent in that little group at the time I thought it was you know terrible living in the 1980s but and this comes across in Mayflies too looking back it was kind of golden you know you know, you mentioned the humour. It was very important to me that the book also be funny because I really didn't want to, you know, invent commas, write a misery memoir. And my brother was a very funny guy as well. Mm. That has to be remembered and said. And I think I recount a story in the book where 
Andrew Hague and I had both graduated in the early 90s and were in the pub in London, I think, possibly having been up all night. My brother was there too. And somehow he overheard me and O'Hagan talking about literature. And uh, he just went berserk, taking the piss out of us. Like, what are you used to talking about? Fucking Shakespeare, man. Or oh, that, have that now, Garfunkel. <laughs> yes. I don't know how my brother boiled down Shakespeare's this character of Garfunkel, whether he was thinking of Paul Simon's singing partner or the London restaurant chain is lost to history. But he suddenly started just capering about this pub, showing have at now, Garfunkel. Oh, he and I just crying with laughter, just absolutely <laughs> helpless with mirth. And, you know, my brother... He liked to do things like that because he knew um, it amused and scandalised me. He would play up almost to this image of a sort of rent ed because he knew I, I found it scandalising and amusing. You know, he cast me as a sort of Guardian reading model of political correctness by the, by the sort of 90s, you know. I remember many years ago interviewing Andrew O'Hagan. He said the problem was that there he was as a small boy with his aunties and his mum in their flat and his dad would be doing the football pools or something and he said and I was trying to run a literary salon from my <laughs> flat and this was when he's a little boy and of course it is kind of I mean it happens and for you it's pressing your Evans outsized shirt to wear with a gladioli to look like Morrissey but you can't really get rid of that impulse in yourself but it's not always met with what you might call <laughs> kindness and understanding <laughs> yes, by, by your immediate circle is it so I can see why you and Linda form a little sort of gang there yeah yeah you? well Linda and I are also close because I was so far away in age I was seven years older than Linda so we never had that kind of static that brothers and sisters who are closely aged get you know I've always just felt um protective towards her and you know responsible for her and she also she grew up with a very similar sense of humor to me maybe partly my called my doing inflicting certain things on her but you know Linda and I are very have always been very tight she's got some very funny lines in the book as well I mean it kind of everyone has I mean Garrett definitely does but it comes out straight away because you the opening of the book is quite I don't know what the word is. I want to say brutal, but that sounds awful. But you know what I mean? It's shocking. You're not shying away from what's going on right at the beginning. Funny you, you mentioned that, Lucy, because the first draft of the book had a much longer opening chapter. And then the second chapter was the one it currently begins with. And the first chapter, it was really, it was a sort of defensive rationale for why I was writing the book. And a couple of my friends who are also writers who read it early just went, you don't need this first chapter. They said, look, it's well written. And if I picked this up in the bookshop and read the first page, I might go on. But if I opened it with the phone call chapter, I'd definitely continue reading, you know. And it was the right call. It was like, you both know from, from working in journalism, what have you, a lot of the first paragraphs of articles are often throat clearing before you actually embark on what you need to say. The early draft of the first chapter, it was a bit like that, which I ended up just cutting completely. You were kind of giving a justification. This is why yeah. I need to write the book and this is what's going to happen. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and uh, yeah, here's who I am and here's what I've done. And it didn't matter, you know, nobody cares. I guess one of the things really is that the rationale for writing the book, the justification, if that's what, you know, is the book itself. The book has to be that rationale. I really felt very much that it was because it is such a rich book. But you did say right at the very beginning when we were talking to you that you do want it to be useful, to be a companion in some way to people who've been through something similar. I mean, there are very many versions of how stories of this kind of, of nature can play out, but it's sort of integral, the integral message. I didn't set out to write any kind of self help book I was kind of asked this last night on stage in Edinburgh as I said to you ranking last night I said if anyone's coming to John Niven for a self-help book they're in serious trouble I'm not the guy to, to do that but at the same time I, I was kind of thinking if this is a resonance and the thing about suicide is I've said this a couple of times it's one of those subjects you become a PhD in after it affects you read the shelf full of books and you spend a lot of time thinking about it so if the book can help people who have been through a similar experience in the way that all literature does, to know that you're not alone, that someone has, has walked that road too. If it can help in that way, that's fantastic. You know, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be very happy. But um, yeah, I didn't set out to write it thinking um, that was the primary 
motive, you know. But it also does a, just a really seemingly simple but very difficult thing of bringing him alive. Mm, we have yeah. a very strong sense of of who he was and how he talked and what he got up to and, you know, your view of him and the people who loved him. And, and that's very, very powerful. That's another thing that I think sometimes happens when you shine the light on a, an unexamined life. A life that wasn't that examined by the person who lived it. There's always a sort of pathos with that. And the interesting thing I've noticed that the signings of the two signings I've done so far, is there's been a lot of people buying two and three copies of the book. And um, I was telling my sister this, and she said, yeah, I know a few of my friends who bought them, two or three. And she, she said, I think suicide affects a lot more people than you would think, because a lot of people don't talk about it. You know, my mother's from a generation where you, the word was kind of difficult to say. And, you know, the, the whole time when you weren't able to be buried in consecrated ground, that was only very recently. And so I think maybe people are buying it for friends because they'll know someone who's been through what the book describes, you know. And actually, to add, I mean, there are parts of the, the book, many parts of the book, that will speak to people, you know, beyond suicide, aside from suicide. There are all sorts of elements of the book. I found it absolutely extraordinary, John. I really did. It's a wonderful book. It's one of those books you you feel you really can't say to the writer you enjoyed. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I get that. But thank you. I'm so pleased to hear that. But you can say you deeply, deeply appreciated it. And I think it will get and deserve a huge audience. Is it now back to writing the anti-Hillary Mantel novels? Thankfully, before all this promotion started, I managed to finish the first draft of the next novel. So I'll, can I, I'll probably be, um, depending on what happens with the writer striking early, I have a couple of movie projects pending. But I'm hoping to deliver the, the next novel sort of next uh, summer, autumn for publication in 25. And one thing that I don't I don't sense that you'll ever go back to is life as an AR man. <laughs> because we we might say, and I'm for, sorry, I do have to bring oh, this God. up. You are the man who said, no, I don't think so, Muse. And no, I don't <laughs> think so, Coldplay. When that story gets retold, it makes it sound like they're sitting in front of me and I'm there like the, I'm there like the cat, cat man. In the, you were there with a cigar going, you'll never make it, lads. Yeah, you can't sing, you can't play, you look awful. <laughs> it's, it wasn't quite like that. I just didn't really get the demos. I, hand on heart, I still really don't get either those bands out, you know. But um, yeah, I should have. I've always been paid for uh, allegedly to have some commercial instinct, so... On that basis, I certainly failed. <laughs> well, I have to say, I was reading this book and my husband said to me, who worked in the music business for a long time, which bit have you got to? And I said, Mike Flowers. And he just burst into hysterical <laughs> laughter. So, <laughs> we'll leave that as something for readers to discover. And I was also very, very pleased to hear a good mention of one of my favourite bands, The Loft, who one of your favourite bands too. I saw them in Glasgow a few weeks ago. So this is a music lover's book as well. It is the, perhaps the smaller part of the book, but, you know, big, big advice on how not to deal with your heroes if it is perhaps the first time you're meeting your equivalent of Joe Strummer. Yeah, that, that did not go well for young John. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily, not quite as young, but still very youthful in spirit. John has been here with us today talking about his book, Oh Brother. John, thank you so much. We wish you the very... Best of of luck with publication of the book. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure. have time for this week our thanks go to nicola shulman and john niven and thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me alex clark goodbye <laughs>